0: Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including cyril o, at 0 1926 Yellow Cake Advocate, Tony P., Peter S., and Jim P. So we're joined today with Brandon Monroe, CEO of Bannerman Resources, a Namibian-focused uranium developer advancing the Itango project on the Atlantic coast of Namibia. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol B-M-N, and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol B N. N L F. The company also has a listing on the Namibian Stock Exchange. Brandon, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. Great to be talking.
0: So, Brandon, let's let's go back. Tell us how you came into the natural resource business. What what caught your attention about this business, and then how did you become focused on uranium?
1: Well, my journey started with an economics degree in Western Australia, and I progressed through that and also graduated from law school over here and initially went into the corporate uh, legal environment. Um, I was very attracted by mergers and acquisitions and um, some of the large transactions that go on in a place like Perth. And you know, Perth is quite an interesting place. It's not a particularly big city at all, but it is one of the probably half a dozen most important natural resources centers in the world being the gateway into both Australia, but in particular Western Australia with its vast mineral resources. And I think when you're working in a big commercial corporate law firm, particularly at the pointy end of mergers and acquisitions, uh, it's only natural in this environment that most of your clients are resources companies. And then I was particularly fortunate to be cutting my teeth in that environment in the midst of the last uranium boom. Uh, So a number of the Very uh, quite famous, you could say, takeover battles we participated in. Probably the the best result out of those was Summit, where the firm that I was working for uh, was retained by Summit for its defence, and we ended up um, with an outstanding result uh, with a final takeover price of about $1.2 billion, Um, and a number of other uranium companies offering general corporate advice along the way, and, and there was a lot of acquisitions. Of properties, acquisitions of companies, mergers, failed takeovers, and sovereign buyouts, and so on. Uh, so what happened after that is I I merged or I emerged from law and joined a client which was a conglomerate listed on the ASX that had a number of different assets, and it was a good opportunity for me as a young professional to get out there and. Uh, manage a number of large-scale transactions. So uh, it, even before the takeovers days in the uranium sector, I managed the float of Oceana Gold um, because the company I worked for owned the McRae's Gold Mine in New Zealand. I did quite a lot of work in renewables infrastructure um, because the company I worked for had a was bidding on a very large waste management and renewable energy project in the UK. It was that type of stuff that was nice and median for a young professional. I I could have one foot in the heavily regulated side of what we were doing with my legal background, but then another foot venturing further and further into the more commercial aspects. And I think it just morphed from that, um, that exposure to uh, the, the, the cut and thrust of deal making in the resources sector plus a a heavy emphasis on capital markets. That's probably the one thread that has run throughout my career. Um, You know, I've done various things, including uh, being an authorized representative for a financial license for a fund manager and these types of things that uh, give me a great scope and breadth of understanding of capital markets, particularly down here, but also help to give me a, a, probably a slightly different perspective to many mining company CEOs who know a hell of a lot more than me about engineering and geology and all of those sorts of things, but perhaps haven't sat in the sort of seats that I've sat in.
0: So for a moment, take us back, humor me for a moment, take us back to the summit takeover. You've got Paladin with uh, the Borjov, Chalmers, uh, Swabi and, and Garo team uh, at that time, if I recall, if my, if my dates are right. Tell us, tell us about that, and kind of tell us, tell us how that started and how how the how the battle kind of ensued there, and how it how it came to to finish up.
1: Well, if you look at it, um, 2005 was quite a spectacular year for many uranium equities, and I think it offers listeners and investors a very useful analog to how we'll see the bull market, the early stages of this bull market, play out, um, and. If you look back to 2005, if my memory serves me correctly, we had a setup where Paladin started the year at something like 4 cents and ended the year at something like $2. Summit started the year at something like 16, 15, 16 cents and ended above 50 cents. Uh, you had Euramin established, uranium 1 was being formed back in those days. So it it was already a very different environment in 2005 to what we see today as we're just coming out of a bear market in this current um, Uranium sector. So then by 2006, we started to have uh, the first of the transactions, Hathor completed the acquisition of Rough Rider deposit in Canada, we had the Cigar Lake floods, Uh, we saw Euroman listing, And uh, to fast forward to 2007 when we were really at the height of things, um, it was towards the very beginning of that year when Paladin um, launched its bid for Summit and needed to sweeten it on several occasions. Um, It was just around that time that Paladin opened Heinrich, so it was uh, obviously had some real lift under its wings as a result of that. Uh, By about July, the Paladin share price had peaked and um, we were starting to see a decline in both the uranium price but also uh, equity values. And it, as a result of that, I think there was an intensity to try and mop up the full acquisition of Summit, which they never achieved. They ended up getting something like about 88%. Um, but the we unfortunately were just the lawyers working on the process. So uh whilst it was great fun we weren't exposed in the same way that the in uh, the small boutique investment banks were and uh, the bank that was representing summit at the time had rather cleverly put in a super fee provision where they got uh, quite a generous cut of what at the time seemed an absolutely outrageous uh premium on the initial bid and uh you know, they, they literally took tens of millions of dollars off the table in fees because of the intensity of that bidding competition and the fact that it, because it was script for script, as Paladin's share price uh, continued to rise off both market and company driven catalysts, so too did the implied value of the takeover. So that was a good lesson for me because uh, at the end of the day, you can, you can be a good lawyer but it, uh, you're still servicing somebody as a lawyer. And as one of my early mentors put, uh, the legal profession is the world's second oldest profession and got an awful lot in common with the oldest one. So from that point, I realised that I needed to be a bit more in the driving seat as to what we were doing. Um, but there were so many transactions going on at that time. Um, the Arriva takeover of Euroman towards the back end of 2007. I mean, that made the summit numbers look almost modest. I think it ended up being about two and a half billion. Even the break fee on that transaction was something like $75 million. And uh, by 2008, um, you had Paladin completing the um, acquisition of Fusion, uh, the sector had come come down quite a lot on the spot price and intensity, and of course um, we were then re-establishing a base in the spot price before the structurally driven um, recovery, which was cut short by Fukushima. So by 2009, I was working in the Uranium sector proper in Namibia.
0: I want to probably just just, start on O for sure, but probably the oldest oldest profession out there is probably banking. I I might be wrong. (laughs) But but, uh, yeah, no, it's interesting just uh, looking back at that and then getting your perspective on it, uh, you know, kind of being in the background there, kind of watching what was going on in the sector and seeing what was happening in, in, in Namibia with what Paladin was doing and what Uriman was up to and, and those, those uh, situations that were playing out. Um, what and, and I should
1: add, Andrew, I, one thing I didn't say in, amongst all of those numbers, um, the the one number that I do remember really well is that the, the final acquisition price uh, for Summit was six dollars twenty-two a share, and remember, in two thousand and five, they were trading at something like 15, sixteen cents. Uh, so it was a spectacular result.
0: Right, and that puts it into perspective uh, with how how much things can can uh, get out of hand, I guess, and 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 go up, and and then of course the resulting onslaught of uh, M and A activity and kind of uh, sloshing around of, of money uh, that goes into it uh, towards the top. Um, yeah, it's certainly interesting. And I, I remember, uh, obviously, we know the end of the story with Summit. We know how that ended uh, in 2018 with with Paladin finally finishing that up. And I remember the only, the only experience that I, I knew of with Summit was 2007, or I'm sorry, 2017, uh, when the stock was trading around 11 cents. I'm not sure when i when i picked it up but for for a short period of time there i there was a completely stupid out of the blue freak uh increase in that share price of summit that that occurred from 11 cents to uh i think a dollar 20 or 40 intraday uh on the asx i don't know if you remember you can look at february 2017 but uh quite quite interesting uh no no clue about what happened there but uh (laughs) that was that was the one of the best uh, results we had had so far in this uh, in this new bull run.
1: It <laughs> sounds like a fat fingers moment, doesn't it?
0: Yes, yes, completely crazy. I don't know what happened, but uh, it, it worked out pretty good for somebody, <laughs> and, and not so <laughs> good for <Yeah>. others. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so so take us back for a moment too, and 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 you saw what was going on. You saw Arriva take out Urimin. You saw what Paladin was doing. Uh, what, what was some of the things that you saw that, uh, that you took away from that last cycle with this type of activity? What, do you, what would you say were, were maybe some positive things you learned from those uh, teams at the time? And what was some, maybe some negative things that occurred?
1: Uh, so I think the negative one is um, fairly easy to identify in that, as you said, it did get very frothy towards the top. And there was a large transfer of value. And much like a game of musical chairs in the end, the investors left standing when the music stopped uh, did lose a lot of money. Um, now, fortunately, for retail investors, a large proportion of that uh, endpoint value was paid by sovereign funds. Uh, although um, as you've highlighted, the there was a lot of paladin script that was issued uh, that didn't end very well. Uh, enormous number of positives. And I think being involved at a fairly early stage in my career uh, in both m and generally, it, it wasn't only the Uranium sector, of course, um, but specifically the Uranium sector and seeing something that could run so hard, um, it's helped me position during the bear market uh, for what I think will happen and I think given me a fairly high level of confidence as to how it'll play out. So I think some of the key learnings are that it's very important to be thinking now about the attributes of a stock that's going to make it more or less attractive once a bull market starts to mature into a consolidation route. So the way I look at it is we're only just coming out of a bear market at the moment. I think we can call the bottom of the sector. I think the supply disruption that we've had is enduring. Uh, We won't see much of that supply come on in the next few years. And so because of that, we can call the bottom and we're at this fabulous point in the cycle where you've got a very asymmetrical risk profile. So your chance of losing 50% versus your chance of making 50% in a quality stock, of course, uh, is tremendously good odds for investors. And it'll still be some time before you see a feature of a developing bull market, which is, hmm, I wonder if that's too toppy. I wonder if it's getting a bit expensive. Uh, am I riding this too far? Do I need to sell, et cetera? We'll be in the upswing mode in this cycle um, for quite some time, I think probably one to two years, perhaps even longer. Um, and the problem with the nagging doubt about has the this, has this cycle run all the way? is as an investor, as you well know, you can experience that uh, at pretty early stages in a cycle. And if you experience it too late, well, you should probably be doing something else and just saving your hard-earned pennies and putting it in the bank. What's so important about a consolidation round is companies that are well positioned to be attractive strategically in a consolidation, they can defy some of that gravity as a... Um, bull market starts to mature. The less attractive assets and the inevitable companies that don't really have much to do with Uranium, but perhaps were astute enough to put it in their um, company name and get it somehow into their ticker code, um, they will tend to fall by the wayside first. Uh, And as we saw even in 2012 after Fukushima, uh, companies that had that appeal, continued to grow. So even after Fukushima, we saw CGN pay 2.2 billion for the HUSAB uh, project in Namibia. We saw uh, Uranium One, backed with Russian money, pay a billion for Makuju River in Tanzania. Um, At a time when the sector generally was in quite deep decline as a result of the events at Fukushima. So that's the first thing I'd say. Now with that knowledge, Uh, you're then in a position to really focus on what are the strategic imperatives for a company and I think it's a few things. Um, The first one in this sector in particular is jurisdiction. Um, I can't talk enough about jurisdiction as it relates to uranium and maybe we can break that down a little later. Um, The other one is scale and size. Um, You need to in any industry as it's going through a consolidation phase you need to be asking yourself who's actually going to pay the money here, um, because whilst in any cycle or any commodity you'll experience typical dynamics such as mid tiers trying to become major through acquisitions, majors trying to become bigger than the other major through acquisitions, um, divestments of smaller assets as they get bigger, etc. Um, uranium's got a couple of interesting aspects. The one is I believe that it will become attractive for certain types of diversified miners. At the moment, we've got an exodus uh, by diversified miners. You've got Rio Tinto trying to get out. You've got BHP who lost interest a long time ago, but they've got a byproduct revenue um, that they're looking to to continue with. Um, But some of the other diversified miners, particularly those with strong links into China, I think they will find uranium interesting. Uh, So, you need to say, okay, so if you're going to have competition for a takeover or mergers and acquisitions from a group like that, what are they going to value? And they're going to value de-risking the aspects of uranium mining that they find the least familiar, and that's the social and environmental things. Radiation, you know, they'll they'll always be able to find employees who can deal with radiation risks and, and the technical aspects that pertain to that. It's the geopolitical and jurisdictional risk that is the most disconcerting to groups like that. Um, and then the other major feature that we've got in the uranium sector that you do see in energy markets but you don't see a lot in hard rock minerals is the emergence of the sovereign players. Um, and when you think about it, that's it makes a lot of sense because the most important and crucial thing that uranium does is it keeps the lights on in very large cities. So it has an inextricable link with national security, um, grid security, uh, uh, the industrial growth of very significant nations, et cetera, et cetera. And the sovereign money that comes into a sector like this and starts paying big money for acquisitions, uh, they're not resource specialists. Um, in many cases, the people on the team have probably never bought a mine, let alone something that's got the complexity of a uranium mine or a uranium project. And so they're going to be very focused on risk. And I believe what's essential uh, ahead of the next consolidation round is at least a feasibility study, something that can, that's got the technical integrity to stand up to uh, third conservative third-party due diligence analysis, that'll be undertaken by these sovereigns. And by the way, that's not a a given in uranium or any hard rock mineral space for that matter because, um, as you well know, the game for many juniors out there is to take a project as quickly and as far as they can and then be swallowed by the next bigger fish. So not all companies have been fastidiously doing their technical information, taking their time where they need to. Um, risking losing a little bit of favour on the markets because they spent longer on QAQC or were more conservative on uh, drilling out a resource than they needed to be. Um, There are many examples of companies that have really just tried to do as much as they needed to to progress the project to the next stage before they were taken out. Many of those were taken out in the last boom and they're probably the projects that are still undeveloped Um, but there are still some relics of that thinking that exist in the sector. And they won't easily pass conservative third party uh, due diligence. And then back to jurisdiction. So the third thing that uh, uh, Sovereign looks at very closely is jurisdiction. And with the current level of geopolitical intensity and um, uncertainty in the world, You have to look at a project in a particular jurisdiction and say, well, who, A, can even buy there, so that rules out Canada in the most part, and B, and Australia largely, um, and B, uh, how are they going to be received by the host nation, given that uranium and nuclear is done on a bilateral basis largely. And that puts uh, countries like Namibia in an incredibly interesting situation because we can Namibia, can, uh, it's friends with the Russians, it's friends with the U.S., it's friends with uh, Britain and Europe, and it's certainly friends with China. Um, it's the only jurisdiction who produces uranium at any volume that can actually say that.
0: Right. No, and I think you covered a lot of good points, certainly other the jurisdiction and, and how, these, how these sovereigns and these other uh, players in the market uh, look at jurisdiction and, and so forth. And you're absolutely right on Canada and Australia. Very difficult. The U.S., uh, Probably going to be a little bit more tight this next go around, uh, based on what happened last time. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how how they how they deal with those approvals when when the time comes. So I want to I want to look at uh, kind of just talk uranium for a moment and, and nuclear power before we get into talking about Bannerman, and maybe we can kind of uh, blast through a couple of these uh, uranium topics and get your uh, uh, insights on them. So I kind of touched on it for just a moment, but give us just kind of a brief in your mind, uh, why nuclear power? What is your thoughts on why nuclear power is really the best form of energy?
1: It, so you can look at it from a few different perspectives. First of all, the technology of nuclear power uh, is by far at a technical level, the most viable form of energy. And I include renewables in that. Uh, the difference between burning coal and uh operating a modern nuclear power reactor is a little bit like the difference between um, trying to cook on an old wooden stove without a chimney and uh, buying something from a fast restaurant. There's just a vast number of innovations that have taken place during that period. And for that reason, you, you have a technology that is absolutely superior in every conceivable way, with one exception, and that's the public image of nuclear. And that's where the the broader sector still got a lot of work to do. It is making progress. That progress doesn't get uh, talked about enough. Um, But it is making progress, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Um, You can look at it from a safety point of view. Far away nuclear power is the safest form of electricity production in the world. Safer than solar panels, safer than wind, uh, orders of magnitude safer than hydropower. And again, that's not really well accepted by many parts of the community, but it's a irrefutable fact. Um, If you look at it from a ability of power source to converge with big policy trends, and for me in energy, that's always very important, um, particularly after the oil crisis in the uh, late 70s, you know, that affected every aspect of energy in every corner of the world. And I think we've got something that's a loose analogue to what we had there. We've now got climate change policy that is affecting every aspect of energy in every corner of the globe. And nuclear power, in spite of its image problem, is uh, far and away in the best position to uh, both deliver clean energy without emissions, but also Create the impact that climate policy is designed to achieve in a short period of time. Um, And that narrative is really starting to get a lot of momentum now. With the type of the great work that Michael Schellenberg is doing, um, some of the other um, very credible representations made by James Hansen and other um, very well respected scientists and climate scientists. We are starting to get that narrative a little bit closer towards the the open agenda at the moment. Um, And then from an economics point of view, um, now this is an interesting one because quite often you see analysis typically done by the renewable energy lobby showing how expensive nuclear energy is. Most of the time they've cherry picked some disastrous projects. So if you were to look at Ocliolto 3 in Finland, for example, or um, a couple of the uh, quite infamous Westinghouse reactor builds in the US of recent times. Uh, What you see is vast overruns in both um, CapEx and time. Now, the reason for that is they were being built as first of a type, new reactor technology. Um, They were the Gen 3 Plus era. And it's a little bit like saying my choices are to go and buy a Toyota from the car dealership or I'm actually going to build a car from scratch in my garage. Um, you can't do that and expect to build a car from scratch in your garage at a price that's competitive uh, to the Toyota dealership. I think the problem here is that the vendors of those reactors, um, which is most of the Western world, um, underestimated how well their subcontractors would be able to perform on the first uh, build of these reactors. Uh, so, anyway, so back to my point. The numbers are being cherry picked in terms of the cost of producing nuclear power to try and make it seem unattractive, whereas the reality is precisely the opposite. Um, a nuclear power plant that uh, has not been affected by serious delays and cost overruns is being built at a capital intensity of about six to seven thousand US dollars per kilowatt hour. Um, so, in other words, an upfront investment of six to seven thousand dollars, buys you the equivalent of one kilowatt hour of um, power producing capacity. Now, the thing about nuclear power is capital is by far the largest expense. And as many as your, your listeners would understand, the U308 or the yellow cake component of producing power is very, very small. Um, it's The price inelasticity of power to U308 is absolutely extraordinary and you don't find it in any other energy source. Um, so it's all about capital. So, of course, if you choose a 12 dollars or a $15,000 per kilowatt hour, which is what these, um, it, it, these failure examples were, well, you can make nuclear power look very, very expensive. But conversely, if you see what's being done in China with the Hualong 1 reactor, um, China is producing that reactor, we believe, at about $3,000 a kilowatt hour. And once they're building 10 or 20 of them at a time, they should be able to get that cost down to more like $2,200 a kilowatt hour. So that's an absolute game changer because that's uh, cutting in half or even a third the capital cost component of nuclear power. And so what we see as being a very, very important trend driving uh, a very optimistic view of demand growth in the sector is a a sharp dip in that capital cost, both for domestic Chinese reactors, which is where all the growth is, but moving into the next decade, uh, a value proposition that can really channel and fuel um, the Chinese nuclear export ambitions. So I think if I was to wrap all of those things together, uh, I see nuclear power being uh, an exceptionally clever technology that is well-harnessed, that is safe, that is economically competitive and it offers one other thing which which uh, links a lot to the discussion we've already had and that is energy security. So one of the reasons why Japan um, was so reliant on nuclear power before Fukushima is you could fit the next 10 years of Japanese nuclear energy requirements into a single warehouse It's incredibly dense power. And for a country like Japan that has almost no natural energy resources and has throughout history been utterly dependent on foreign sources for its uh, industrial and military security, that's extremely appealing. And when you add that piece into all of the other uh, climate change advantages of nuclear power, I think it will reassert itself as um, An absolutely really essential part of the energy mix of most large economies.
0: Yeah, I think you covered a lot of good stuff there, and I would just add to, the, to your point about the Toyota, buying a Toyota car or, or build one in your garage. I would just say that you know there's no there's no reason to change uh, what works quite well, especially in the case of nuclear. And there's there's a set of designs worldwide that have been established by different c- countries. Uh, Different organizations, different engineers that work incredibly well, and it's like going down and saying, "Well, am I going to buy a, a Toyota today, or am I going to go buy a Tesla and take my chances?" <laughs> because the fact of the matter is, is you don't you don't care how you cut it. Uh, there are some older companies, older designs that work incredibly well, and that's why you have the cost overruns that you're talking about and it's evident in the United States and the other piece of that too is is the experience you touched on that as well the experience of these contractors that construct uh, it's a big deal um, coming from a construction background myself I, I know that uh, we've we've seen those challenges uh, watching other entrants to these different sectors uh, not have any clue of how to build something that's either a new design or even have the experience to be able to do what they need to do to actually get the project done on time and on budget and so I think it's a set of issues that uh, can can be fixed I think it just needs to be uh, considered that we have an amazing design uh, the the, uh, the pressurized water reactors in the United States the the, the older designs are fantastic it's the same stuff that's, that's been in, in the nuclear submarines and, and a lot of the military uh, hardware of the United States, which is all mostly powered by nuclear, uh, which is nothing more than a small modular reactor that's been been running around for, I don't know, probably at least 50 years of operating history. And so it's, it's really interesting. And the other piece of that too, Brandon, is the fact that uh, the red tape also adds to that cost And in the States and in places like Europe, I know you mentioned Finland, uh, these places are notorious for overly excessive, overburdensome red tape, which has also caused these things to overrun as part of it as well. And so I think there's a number of issues um, with it and and all stuff that can certainly be fixed. So on nuclear power, one more thing I want to ask you. What's your thought on the place that uh, small modular reactors, what's your thoughts on taking this to a commercial level, taking basically design a technology that's been around in a small form for a number of years in in, uh, naval applications, and applying this to a commercial-wide setup. Do you think small modular reactors has a future?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it does. Um, We've seen small modular reactors in its various types of technologies stalled largely since Fukushima. But we are seeing almost all of those groups start to be re-energized. The the laggards were some of the um, U.S. and Canadian technologies. And we've just seen in really recent months a lot of support from the Trump administration for that technology so that the U.S. designs can get back in the race, so to speak. But from the, the nuclear powerhouse of the 21st century is either going to be Russia or China or possibly both. And both of those nations have realized that SMRs play a very important role in the energy mix. And they've been not only promoting and encouraging their own technology development, but they've been offering platforms to build commercial reactor, um, basically pilot projects or test projects. So we've seen floating reactors completed in the US, uh, In Russia. Um, we're seeing other forms of SMRs being deployed both in uh, Russia and China, and that very much deals with your um, red and green tape point that you made earlier. Um, The single biggest thing that both Russia and China can do to give their industries a leg up um, is not to uh, impose or allow unfair trade practices, it's to remove the massive inhibitions that some of these regulations impose upon a domestic industry. Um, and there's lots of reasons why it's particularly applicable to countries like Canada, Russia, China, even Australia, and that's because less populated countries have got a more distributed electricity grid. Um, so it's always interesting to look at anything nuclear from the perspective of, of Australia um, because Australia is uh, probably the only significantly developed nation that is utterly anti-nuclear. Um, even Italy at least imports 10% of its nuclear power from its of its power from nuclear from its neighbours. Um, so in Australia the issue is largely political, but equally you could probably only cite two or three conventional one gigawatt reactors in Australia without um, really having a negative effect on the electrical grid, because Australia's been built on Relatively small coal-fired power stations, distributed relatively evenly across a large land area, and so they just wouldn't be able to cope with a two, three, four gigawatt um, condensed energy source. And that's where SMRs play a real role. And you can take that thinking and, it, and apply it to places like Canada and the um, certainly Russia with very remote areas, um, and to some of the inner parts of China as well. The second point I'd make about SMRs is the fast breeder technology that has the capacity to reprocess fuel um, is a very important part of the go-forward PR game or or battle that nuclear is fighting out there in the minds, hearts and minds of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, For many years the nuclear waste has been seen as the Achilles heel. Now, on the one hand, I can argue, and no one does it better than Michael Schellenberger, but I can argue that, well, at least we know where the waste is. We haven't just put it up a chimney or into people's lungs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you don't even need to go there in terms of arguing the merits of nuclear waste over other forms of energy waste when you're using a fast breeder reactor, because that waste, is the toxicity and longevity of that waste form is reduced by such a huge extent that if you look at, say, GE Hitachi's prism reactor, um, if my numbers are correct, I, I recall that they the half-life of the final daughter products out of that waste stream is only 300 years. Um, and that's a game changer for the sector and that'll become more and more important. And where we probably will end up in several decades' time, there's a situation where nuclear energy is truly regarded as a renewable energy source because a large proportion of the industry will be able to operate from previous industries' waste streams. Uh, and that's incredibly exciting. And it's it's also very reassuring in terms of the capacity of the um, the people to industrialize on the planet um, without having a a strong negative effect through energy waste.
0: Right and I would I would say with the SMRs as well that uh, it's attractive for for countries who are also smaller uh, certainly island nations uh, smaller island nations and also smaller countries that ha- that are on a shorter energy budget. So, you know, places certainly in in Africa uh, south and central America uh, can can certainly adopt a small scale uh, nuclear uh Program and and also be within their budgets, um, so I think that's promising in itself. To where you can take it the other direction and look at these countries that have uh, lower budgets and and can't quite afford, uh, you know, dumping 15 billion dollars into a into a big reactor conventional. Um, and I think you're right. I think the the, the feeder technology, uh, or the breeder technology, is is interesting. Uh, on, on that subject, I want to ask you, uh, and we, we already talked about Australia, so I'll leave that one alone, but how far out do you see the uh, the technology before that really starts to be confirmed and something that can actually is economically viable for nuclear power, the uh, the breeder technology?
1: Uh, well, I think the the economic viability depends on the power source. If you're running off fresh uranium that then goes through a number of reprocessing iterations as part of the closed circuit, well, then essentially they're viable in the right circumstance today. Um, The right circumstance being not competing with a conventional reactor where you've got that uh, grid demand, but in a situation like what you've identified where you You just can't put a conventional two, three, four, six gigawatt reactor. So you're then comparing an SMR with other alternative power sources. Um, So the viability of fresh uranium is pretty much there already. Viability of uh, uh, spent fuels, that's probably still some time away. And um, that would become more of an impetus initially, commercially, uh, once we see uranium price recover strongly. Uh, so it, if, if you're trying to put uh, a model together on an SMR that your alternatives are buying fresh uranium for $50 or $60, or trying to um, reprocess spent fuel or other types of nuclear waste products uh, for insertion into that reactor, you, you're gonna buy your fresh uranium every day of the week. Can you probably do the same based on current technology Uh, closer to $100 a pound as well. However, two things will happen. One is uh, the sources of fresh uranium uh, don't last forever, as we well know, and the price needs to go up. And secondly, the impetus to deal with the current levels of um, nuclear waste will increase. And so you're not just looking at the cost of reprocessing fuel versus the cost of fresh uranium you're looking at those costs plus some form of credit that you get back for putting used fuel into a fast breeder instead of dealing with it in some other way.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's interesting. And and timing, the timing to to get, you know, I I was looking at some of the technology and for it to come out on on a widespread basis, it seems like it's... Certainly not anything that's that would affect uh, this this current cycle that we're in. Uh, it seems like it's quite a ways off still. But uh, do you do you see that the waste issue, Brandon, is is uh, of a of a large enough scale? Granted, what we are going to start seeing with, with uh, solar solar replacement and and wind turbine replacement coming to the end of their first generation usable lives. Do you you really see that the the nuclear waste issue, obviously in the public it's a big deal, but when you really drill down and look at the total space usage and and the concern, what's what's so bad about the storage?
1: Well, if you're prepared to have an open mind to the facts, uh, there is nothing bad about the storage. So to back that up, I've obviously uh, spent quite some time in the sector, but I have treated the the waste issue with a great deal of serious review, particularly when I was first entering the nuclear sector. It was the concern area that I had and I wanted to understand the facts. And I went as far as going up to Finland and and, uh, reaching out to the utility there, TVO, and I was given a um, a very in-depth, personalised tour of their uh, waste disposal facility. And uh, there's probably two of those kind in the world, one in France and then one in Finland, that do represent the industry's best thinking on long-term disposal of waste. And that facility left me in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the waste issue can be permanently, safely, and um, at the right scale economically dealt with. So the only remaining risk is political, in other words, are there countries who won't require that level of handling? Uh, And I don't see that as a risk at the moment. And if you project forward, um, particularly when you look at how responsibly uh, the Russians and the Chinese are treating the whole fuel cycle, um, the trend is towards if you were to, you use Africa as example. So let's pick an African country who's engaged with um, Ross Adam on reactors. Uh, let's start with Egypt. So let's say that you had a view that, oh gee, I'm just not sure about Egypt in 50 years time. Are they still going to be motivated to be dealing with their waste? Well, what's really important is that Ross Adam are doing that. So when the Russians negotiate with Egypt, it's done on a build own operate basis, where not only do the Russians provide financing support, but they build the reactors, they operate it until they can hand over to the Egyptians. They supply the uh, nuclear fuel and they take it away at the end. And I know firsthand that Ross Atom is leading the field in terms of dealing with waste. They see it as an absolutely vital part of their strategy to be able to demonstrate to those host nations, but the world at large, that we will take that waste back and we will deal with it responsibly so that it isn't something that carries forward for future generations. Um, so that's why uh, at a personal level, um, I'm comfortable entirely with that. And I can also argue that uh, whilst it is does require special handling and it is a highly toxic substance, it's incredibly concentrated and we know exactly where it is. We just haven't put it up a, a chimney or put it out in fields to be dealt with by the next generation, which is you know what we're starting to come on to with solar, as you say.
0: The oversight of the agencies, uh, the IAEA, for example, and and so forth. I think that there's a lot of a lot of oversight that occurs uh, with any of these nuclear nations. Um, so I think it's it's interesting that people say, oh well, we, you know, too, well, we what about people trying to steal it? Well, good grief! If you look into the logistics of trying to set up a heist like that. Uh, trying to, to move trying to move this, uh, where it is in these facilities and the sizes, I mean, it, it's just laughable that people think that you know some thief in the night's gonna show up and, and steal a rod. It's, <laughs> but anyway,
1: we'll, yeah, we'll that, leave it. That's pretty good for Hollywood, but it doesn't have a lot of bearing on reality. And if someone wants to create um, mass mayhem or mass loss of health or life, um, there's probably a hundred substances that are far more dangerous than enriched uranium and far easier to get access to.
0: Yes. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And speaking, you mentioned Hollywood. I, I see uh, it looks like HBO is supposed to be putting out something on Chernobyl. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how the, uh, I'm sure they'll spend it in the worst way possible. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be geared towards maximizing views and and, and revenues. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Uh, So, I want to ask you, let's let's talk about uranium prices for a moment. And if you want to give us some predictions, that sounds great. Uh, Where do you see the long-term uranium price in terms of spot and long-term contract price, say, over the next three to five years? And do you think we'll see all-time highs? Um,
1: Well, all-time highs, if you track the real uranium price... Uh, back to the 1970s and we do that in Bannerman's corporate presentation. If anyone wants to go onto our website they can download that and see also annotated um, with the number of catalyst trigger points over that period. Um, The all-time uranium price uh, spent several years above $160 a pound in real terms uh, in the late 70s early 80s and that was driven by the oil crisis. Um, And interestingly the sector itself was absolutely prospering. Nuclear power was the uh, uh, did incredibly well in that period despite those prices. And it was only Three Mile Island and the associated publicity with that that started to take the wind out of the sails. Um, so it's always difficult to make a call about um, eclipsing those sort of levels of pricing. Um, and that will be driven by demand. Um, does demand? Uh, start to fulfill something like the World Nuclear Association's Harmony Objectives, um, where they're anticipating another thousand gigawatts of new installed nuclear by 2050? Um, Or does it take a a flatter projection such as the World Nuclear Association's upper scenario? Um, And I think that is the, the range that we can expect if you take an optimistic view of what nuclear power can do for the world. And and you assume that climate change policy continues on its current trajectory. Now, the reason why I say it's demand growth driven is to see those sort of levels, we will need to see a very solid demand picture that continues unabated despite rising um, Uranium prices. Now, it, in the range of where we are today to $100 is supply driven and it's shock driven. Um, because we've got a pretty good idea of what the, let's call it the minimum amount of nuclear fuel demand is over the next 20 years. Um, so uh, it's, you'd be a brave person, a brave pessimist to predict a large scale decline in nuclear power, given where the world's at with energy. Um, we would probably need some sort of um, macro global shock event. Uh, to create that, in which case you know, we might be more worried about running away from a huge meteor than we are about how our Uranium stocks are doing in our portfolio. Um, So nuclear power's there and it's there to stay. But what isn't there to stay is the supply of Uranium. Um, So for a start, we've got a number of large mature mines that are depleting their resources and tapering down in terms of their level of production. Um, Cigar Lake is a great example in the North American context, Uh, richest uranium mine in the world, pumping out fabulous um, uh, ore at about 18% uranium or U-308, Um, but it runs out of reserves in 2027 and it will be no longer. Uh, There are many examples on a uh, less abrupt uh, decay trajectory in Kazakhstan because the nature of ISR deposits, particularly the absolute tier one deposits that they brought through into production from the Soviet era. and The natural of those deposits, it, it's a, they deplete on a, they have a, a long, expensive tail to them. And on our analysis, all of the viable uranium projects in the world will need to come into production over the next 20 years just to meet the decay portfolio in the current supply. And that includes the viable care and maintenance mines coming back on into production. Um, I say viable because there's an awful lot of uranium projects out there that are not viable in that time frame, not without changing political assumptions, not without um, dramatic increases in technology, or not without such a high uranium price that it uh, enables those projects to defy economics. So the a, a recovered uranium price in that band, I see is inevitable because we can't have a situation over the next decade, where the nuclear power stations run out of fuel, and I don't see any realistic basis for trying to um, work with a scenario where we see a large, term, a large scale decay in the volume of nuclear power that's produced. And in fact, it's quite the opposite in all of the probability scenarios that I'm working with. Um, now, where that gets exacerbated is um, if we see further supply shocks from any particular environment, or if we see sovereigns who start a a stockpiling process in earnest. Um, And that might be done either to obtain the material or it might be done to promote exploration through a runaway Uranium price. Um, Not that great for producers because it's hard to make long-term decisions when you've got a spiking Uranium price, but absolutely fabulous for equities investors. A good example of that is the manipulation of the rare earth market that we saw by the Chinese in 2009, 2010. Um, It had the effect of laying on paper for Beijing quite a comprehensive overview of all the world's REE deposits because it spurred such an incredible round of exploration. And uh, you know, I, I think it was masterful. I think they played Western capital markets for a fool. And uh, now the suppliers assured in a number of rare earth elements, and we've got a much clearer picture of where that material can come from and where China's relative strengths and comparative advantages lie.
0: So you're in a country that has quite a bit of natural gas production. So, you know, power utilities around the world and, and specifically the U.S. have used natural gas power uh, due to you know, low prevailing gas prices, and also uh, maybe a secondary element of the fact that you know it's a little bit cleaner. Uh, how do you see low natural gas prices going forward, and do you see low natural gas prices kind of tempering the uranium prices at this point?
1: Uh, so I don't see low natural gas prices, or I don't see very low natural gas prices, sort of two to three dollars, um, as a given going forward. I think there's a number of Um, elements that point to natural gas, particularly unconventional in the U.S., increasing substantially. Um, And that's very rarely uh, brought into the minds of investors when they look at nuclear. Uh, So together with the um, fact that the key nuclear markets don't have particularly good access to gas, um, so China has, given the size of its economy, relatively um, insignificant, resources of domestic gas. They are trying to build pipelines up to Siberia and they do import quite a lot of natural gas from countries like Australia. But in the scheme of things, it's pretty small and they're not so keen to be uh, as reliant on those markets. So I think the, the key role of gas going forward is more its flexibility, its ability to load follow and load shed. And that then comes down to whether nuclear establishes a legal playing field with renewables or whether we continue to operate in the same paradigm. Um, So intermittent renewables, uh, as your listeners are well aware of, um, had a very significant effect on grid stability and grid security. Um, And in particular, the resiliency of a grid, Um, given that grids that rely on nuclear and coal for their resiliency, Um, they can't respond very quickly to a wind event that might blow up in 60 or 90 minutes and deliver tens of gigawatts down electricity grid. Um, And that's where gas has a comparative advantage in that the capital cost is low. Uh, The cost of gas made power is predominantly the gas itself. So if you have a gas power plant that's designed to turn on for six hours a day when the wind ain't blowing and the sun ain't shining, um, that fills a a need and it also um, is artificially supported by the the various subsidy regimes and the way that uh, renewal intermittent renewables um, is preferred over solutions like nuclear. Now if we see climate change policy move in two directions, one is to levy the full cost of power including uh, carbon cost of power um, onto gas then that will differentiate positively towards nuclear. And then the second thing is if we if we see an acceptance by policymakers of how costly the, the deterioration of grid resilience really is to economies, then I think what we'll start to see is renewables play on a more level playing field where perhaps they need to bid power based on a minimum baseload component where they either need to price in the establishment and running of alternative uh, load following sources, or they need to incorporate storage into their production so that they're not just bidding on the solar power that they get for the 8 or 12 hours a day when the sun's shining brightly, but instead they're bidding on providing 15 hours of power to cover both the peak, peak stages during the dark morning and the peak stages during the dark evening.
0: So, what are your thoughts on higher uranium prices and how they might impact old reactors in high cost jurisdictions so like the u.s for example do you see a hundred dollar uranium price as a reason to be less likely to attempt to keep older reactors online as they go through maintenance state and also uh relicensing or is this or is the price really irrelevant Uh, and and this this whole old reactor US shutdowns, is that really just irrelevant to the cycle at hand?
1: Um, No form of economics is ever irrelevant. It's just what is its positioning amongst the subset of relevant factors. Uh, Amongst the subset of relevant factors, it's the red and green tape and the compliance costs that is more important for old reactors versus the uranium cost. Um, So if, if you and bear in mind that these utilities, they're not fueling their reactors with $25 or $30 uranium, they've got a portfolio of buying that would have a medium price somewhere in the 50s or 60s, perhaps higher if they if they contracted a lot during the last boom. So there isn't as much of a gap between $100 uranium and the current portfolio price as you would expect looking at where spot is right now. But the reality is that um, to increase their average cost of U308, ignoring conversion costs, enrichment costs, fabrication costs, um, to increase that by $40, um, we're talking in many instances less than a cent kilowatt hour. Um, so it does affect uh, competitiveness in some way, but not as much as things like. Um, interactions with the regulator, levels of green tape, red tape and the point that I made before in terms of um, a level playing field with uh, renewable energy in particular. Um, So a zero emission credit that rewards nuclear power for its clean energy source and its uh, zero carbon emissions, um, that goes an awful lot further than having incredibly cheap Uranium that they can put into their reactors, or that they can put into their fuel cycle, that ultimately goes into the reactors.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point that you brought up, and and also the fact that the price is much higher than than what we see today. Uh, you know, that the, the, the already, this material is already secured, it already has a a price to it much higher than where we are today. So I think it's good to clarify that for some of the audience who are concerned about U.S. shutdowns and and some of these plants that are. You know, uh, really just kind of losing money as, as time goes on and so forth and and that kind of concern uh, from that angle, so I think it's I think it's good that you clarified that and you had a a good couple of points there for for people to understand. So let's talk uh, fuel cycle conditions uh, if long term contracting comes in as planned, is there enough fuel infrastructure such as conversion? enrichment fabrication, are these things available to deal with the growth in uranium production and, of course, uh, the, the big demand coming out of that that could potentially be occurring uh, in the next few years? Do you see kind of a bottleneck for that infrastructure coming?
1: Uh, there's potential bottlenecks in conversion and fabrication. In Richmond, we still have significant overcapacity. Uh, So in the short term, uh, absent the closure of enrichment facilities or the unexpected closure of enrichment facilities, I don't see that being an issue. Um, Conversion, obviously, with the Honeywell facility or Converdine's facility in the US metropolis being on care and maintenance, it's very tight. But there is conversion capacity that could be opened up in the right economic situation, um, both there and also... uh, Cameco's got excess conversion capacity, Urano's got some excess conversion capacity that would come at a price but could be turned on relatively quickly. Um, And that's good for the uranium market because at the end of the day, we want utilities and other buyers to be buying the uranium and pushing it through the fuel cycle, not having a bottleneck at the conversion or enrichment phase where they have to scratch around looking for stocks of already enriched uranium or already converted UF6 um, that they can stopgap into their fuel cycle. Um, now, over the long-term, uh, I think the security of the fuel cycle will work itself out. Uh, the predominant growth, as your listeners would know, is in China, and China are working towards a having the full fuel cycle capacity within China, and they will make sure that that is right-sized ultimately for both their domestic reactor fleet and also their export ambitions, um, because they certainly want to emulate the build and operate closed cycle type reactor constructions that we've seen Russia um, uh, producing very successfully recently. Um, So long term, I've got no issues. Um, Short term, there are some bumps in the road. Um, Bumps, significant bumps, whilst it would create volatility across the fuel cycle, are ultimately not great for uranium. Um, but at the end of the day, these things have to iron themselves out. It's just which end of the balloon you're squeezing and what are the short-term implications on the U308 price.
0: So on, on fuel cycle services, on the costs, just give us, give us kind of an overview, um, or at least your view on fuel cycle costs back during last cycle and how how technology in the fuel cycle has improved. And as a result, have costs more or less stayed the same or have costs... Gradually gone up with inflation and, and other other factors. How do you how do you see that on the fuel cycle side?
1: So by and large, costs have gone down significantly, um, in the same way that U three O eight has gone down significantly. Um, it's it's not good news for the long term health of the sector. In the same way that low U three O eight prices have almost stymied exploration globally and certainly put existing producers under enormous pressure. the same can be said uh, for the downstream fuel cycle participants in conversion enrichment and to a lesser extent fabrication and those uh, services so conversion and enrichment they also have an analog with the uranium sector because typically they operate on long-term contracts with a short-term or spot style price designed to balance over and under production or over and under supply of those particular services. Uh, So much the same as following a spot price is not particularly indicative of the capacity to finance mines in the future, because most mines are financed off a long-term contract price. Um, Following a spot SWU price is not particularly indicative of the generalised cost being paid by utilities to enrich their uranium. Um, Now, what I would say about technology, because I get I get the, asked a disruption question quite a lot. You know, where where could your thesis be wrong? Where could there be disruption? And one of the technologies that I've been following closely, global laser enrichment technology that Silex and Cameco now have. And um, so that's one to watch. It's had some very serious uh, delays and stoppages. And in fact, it looked like it was almost entirely off the table last year. Um, It does have the potential to benefit from Section 232 rhetoric and potentially Section 232 actions. Um, But if you're looking at that as a disruptor, I think it's got a very minor role to play in the short term. So um, let's say that they do prove the GLE technology um, because it's still not commercially proven. It's still uh, scientifically established, but not commercially proven. So they'd have to build a facility, get access to the DOE um, TAILS facility. And on their plans, they think that they could produce in the order of 5,000 pounds per annum equivalent. So it's really the same as a large mine. So one extra mine, is that disruption? No, no. Is it additional supply? Yes, but highly contingent. Um, Its potential to disrupt Uh, is many, many decades in the future because it would have to be so advantageous to justify closing down existing enrichment infrastructure that's been built at enormous cost. And like your Toyota example, it's been running absolutely perfectly for many, many years. Um, So I would see it as more of an enabler rather than a disruptor. Um, If the GLE technology does in fact work, and works well. Um, it's got a very important niche role to play in reprocessing waste, and uh, you know, both for the planet and um, the nuclear industry in general. The more value we can get out of the existing stored waste, the better.
0: So let's talk uh, recontracting for a moment. Uh, time frame. When Section 232 is out of the way, how much time do you see before utilities? start coming in back into the market. What's your view on that?
1: Well, that's very much gonna depend on the complexity and implications of the Section 232 decision by the Trump administration. Um, In its simplest form, if the Trump administration was to say no action or at least no action on the U308 end of the fuel cycle, then utilities would be able to start reassessing their procurement strategies making decisions and moving on. And you could see that start to happen as early as September when we have the World Nuclear Association's annual symposium in London. Um, The timing associated with these big conferences is very, very important because um, if you think about the nuclear industry, it's an enormous industry, it's very complex, you've got very, very smart people who tend to be experts in their narrow little field who don't always talk to each other very much. So these conferences, there's about four of them a year, are extremely important for when the industry gets together, pops their head up from the detailed work that they've been doing, and gets a generalized sector overview. Um, So they're always, you can track them over um, time, you can link a number of catalyst events to these big conferences, and in particular, the one that's in London, which is the the centralized showpiece of the nuclear sector. So the earliest you could see activity coming on is Um, once utilities go home from the conference in September and start evaluating both what they've learnt from Section 232 outcome and what they've heard from other parts of the nuclear industry. And then they would start their procurement programs from there. If it's a complicated or generalised solution that requires a lot of detail to be worked through, uh, well then it could take them quite a bit longer. Um, particularly if it's a solution that uh, has the potential to to, um, disrupt their procurement activity. So um, an example of that would be what the petitioners have asked for. If we see a 25% quota that is endorsed, but without a lot of detail, well, there's going to be a period of time. You know, does it take three years to come in, four years, five years? How does this work? How does that work? How do you deal with existing stockpiles, et cetera, et cetera? There's not a lot of detail to be resolved. If it's a more simple solution, uh, for example, um, Department of Defense just says, right, bang, here's a five million pound per year contract and we're gonna stockpile on behalf of um, military strategic requirements and we're basically just starting a tender. Well, that's easy to understand from a utility perspective and something that will, the uncertainty will lift very quickly for them. So then the final thing that I'd say about utility contracting for your listeners is um, it's quite a long process in itself and it depends very much on the size and sophistication of the utility. So the very big utilities such as Exelon, who have been contracting fairly consistently over a long period of time, who've got teams that have been in place, both legal and, and commercial teams that have been in place for a long time, who've done it before, they can get from a board decision to an agreed contract, they can condense that process as much as a couple of months. They know who to go to, if they need it done in a hurry, if they're not trying to open up new markets and, and new diversity of suppliers, etc. Now for a utility who is smaller, who don't have the same level of experience in their teams, who may well have not undertaken a request for contract process in the last three or four years, and there's many of those, the process is much longer, and it can take up to six months. And it's that dynamic when you start to see the, what's often called the rush for the door concept in long-term contracting, where you have uh, the bigger utilities acting more quickly, A, because they have greater levels of analysis and confidence, and B, because they can get the process slammed shut faster, absorbing any of the available cheaper pounds in the sector, and then the mid and small utilities realising that if they don't get after it, they're only going to be left with the expensive end of the um, production curve. And that's when you see a high level of intensity coming into contracting. That's what we saw in 2005, 2006, and even into 2007. Um, But that will require significant certainty coming out of Section 232 if we're going to see it this calendar year.
0: So that brings me to my next point. When you go back and you look at the volumes that occurred in the years you mentioned, 2005, 6, and 7, do you see this time around, do you see that the global utilities, they'll be kind of, like you kind of said, they're a rush for the door, kind of a joint effort, a joint rush, if you will, to move into the market kind of all around the same time? And if you don't see it that way, uh, what do you see playing out?
1: I think it would require a significant shift of perspective from where the utilities stand at the moment uh, for us to see that level of intensity in the short term. And in some respects, that's good. Uh, It's probably preferable for companies like Bannerman if we see a slower build in the uranium price so that uh, we see a, a more balanced market before potential intensity of that nature starts. But putting that to one side, the reason I say that is there's a number of aspects of the fuel cycle and in particular uranium supply where the penny just simply hasn't dropped with most of the utilities. There are a couple of exceptions who do independent analysis, who do their own modelling, who are very, very bright analysts um, who are capable of having a proprietary view on the sector. But by and large, the utilities tend to follow uh, the publications of one of three um, consultants in the sector. And so there's a huge amount of groupthink that goes on amongst those groups. Uh, so the pennies will need to drop. Now, if they all dropped at once, if uh, if the world's utilities saw the Uranium sector like I see the Uranium sector, well, I tell you, we would have a rush and it, and it really would be that, um, with at least as much intensity as we saw in 2005. But as you know, Andrew, things don't really work like that. Uh, so it, it's going to be what events lead to a shift in that thinking over what period of time. And history tells me that that is less likely in the absence of some big catalyst, you know, like pick a pick a catalyst, a, a big issue in Kazakhstan geopolitically, or perhaps um, uh, Cigar Lake needing to go down for a period or something like that. That would sharpen their thinking. But absent that, I think we're, we're a little bit more on the slow burn. Um, and at the end of the day, that's a preferable scenario.
0: Do you see those dates lining up as, say, a 2021 through like a 2023? Where do you where do you see that? Do you see as these contracts roll off through that time frame? And I know, I know you probably have a pretty good idea, uh, given given your access to some of the consultants. Um, does it look like a a 2021 onward type situation? And you, do you see it lasting over a couple of years?
1: Uh, well, first of all, the access to the consultancies is, is not where I try and make my decisions because I want to avoid that group thing. So we do our own modelling. Um, but you're right in that I have access to some interesting and brilliant minds in the sector that uh, that are constantly offering new perspectives, sometimes good, sometimes bad, that, that we spend a lot of time evaluating and thinking about. Um, the point for listeners, I think, is that you say 21 ahead of 23, and I think that's a Um, That's an absolute crunch point, but if we get that far without utilities having substantially re-entered the contracting market, um, because the nuclear fuel cycle takes about two years. So from the uh, Uranium being put on a ship at the mine, to going through conversion, going through enrichment, going through fuel fabrication and being transported between all of those steps and ultimately to the nuclear reactor in good time, you've got minimum two years, quite often more like three years. Uh, So if utilities need to cover 2023 positions and their need will be acute by 2023 if they don't start soon, then by 2021, there will be a rush on U308. And if it's gone that long, then some of the earlier comments that I made about serious supply disruption will start coming in. Because if utilities are seeking to contract with new production on only a two year forward outlook, there's very, very few new mines in the world that could come on and just about all of them are quite small. So the utilities would have to be relying on the three viable minds that are on care and maintenance in the world being not only able but willing to come on in that timeframe. And um, so if they've left it until 2021, the extent of the deficit in the sector over that period will mean that we are in a in a deep supply disruption scenario. And um, so again, from both the perspective of an equities investor and the perspective of the health of the nuclear sector more generally, I don't see that as a preferable scenario. Uh, it does mean that whoever's holding until 2022 will wake up millionaires, but it's not really a good outcome. It would be far better to see a, a, a more normalized return to balance between now and 2021.
0: Right. And I, when I was speaking of uh, outside consultants, I was speaking of the consultants that are kind of behind the scenes that not you would expect, uh, you know, such as Nuclear Fuel Associates and some of these better minds, not not specifically the uh, the poster child consultants
1: um Uh
0: (laughs) absolutely so restarts and new mine production uh brandon who and at what price do you see restarts with existing mines that are sizable and then what new notable mine do you really see hitting first during this cycle um give us give us your thoughts on who might who might restart quickly well, within perspective, of course, and 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 what notable mind do you look at in the world right now, uh, a development project that you could potentially see come on relatively quickly and maybe be one of the first in line.
1: So on the restarts, I think the world's attention is obviously focused on Macarthur River, and it's a it's a topic I would like to address because there seems to be this perception tending towards the bare case on uranium that, yeah, yeah, but as soon as we see uranium um, start to recover, MacArthur River will turn on in six months, 12 at the outside and fill everything in. Um, and it just simply won't happen like that. And so for your listeners, MacArthur River's the world's largest uranium mine um, was producing 15, 16 million pounds before it was put onto care and maintenance. Um, Cameco, second largest uranium producer in the world uh, is the operator of MacArthur River and Cigar Lake, which is second largest uranium mine producing the highest grade material in the world, both in Canada. So the thing about MacArthur River is Cameco had to lay off 500 quite specialised jobs. Um, So point number one, the longer it takes them to restart, the longer it will take them to restart because they'll have have a lot more trouble hiring. But the bigger issue, there's the price, but there's also the time. So if you were to glue together all of the things that Cameco have said and sort of the way that I see the sector and so on, my best guess on it is that Cameco would be willing to start contracting once the spot price has recovered to something like $45. Um, There's typically about a 20% premium if you're locking in contract prices going forward. Um, It would be done in a upward trajectory so the utilities would be relatively motivated and so um, Cameco would expect if they're using market related contracts they'd expect to get fairly attractive cuffs and collars at off that sort of spot price and if it's fixed term pricing um, they're going to get something that makes it actually worthwhile for them at that price. But it's not like we see $45 and MacArthur River's going to be on in six months time. Um, I don't think it's like that at all. Number one, once Cameco does see a return to long-term contracting, I believe that their first priority is to make sure that Cigar Lake is fully contracted right out to the end of its mine life, which is 2027. Cigar Lake is an incredibly complex operation that's had many false starts, um, that has a um, absolutely unique set of skill sets in its workforce. And it is not the sort of mine that you could turn on, send everyone home for a few years and then expect to turn back on. It's uh, it's absolutely vital that Cigar Lake continues to run out to 2027. And uh, I believe that that should be Cameco's first priority. So the initial round of contracting won't even help turn on um, MacArthur River in my view. It'll be more driven at making sure that Cameco's contract portfolio supports Cigar Lake. But the second point is, they would look to start contracting for delivery commencing in minimum to more realistically three years time so let's say you know pick a date let's say we've got uranium at 45 dollars on december the 31st and uh, so january 2020 spent negotiating or starting the process and negotiating So in the most optimistic scenario where we've got a real rush for the door situation, it's gonna be three to six months for Cameco to build up that uh, contract book to a sufficient level to um, infill Cigar Lake and also create enough contract deliveries to start MacArthur River back on. So then we're talking mid 2020, but those deliveries would start 2023. So we would have MacArthur River off for four more years in that scenario. And that's a penny that just hasn't dropped in the broader sector. And uh, even amongst some of the very well-informed uranium investors, that's news. So I think uh, we will see MacArthur River come back on, there's no question, but not in the timeframes that many people expect. And that will continue a 30 to 40 to 50 million pound deficit out for the next three, four years, um, which will certainly create a tightened environment. Um, In terms of new mines that would come on. Uh, It's easier to talk about the bigger ones because they are the, rather than picking specific smaller mines, um, it's the bigger mines that have the ability to meet the needs of a greater number of utilities and a greater number of reactors and obviously have the biggest impact on the market. Um, For a start, there's just very few um, large uranium projects out there. That's just a a reality of uh, underinvestment in the sector over the last 10 years. So if you were to look at Uranium projects that can deliver more than 2 million pounds per annum, um, when I count them up, uh, we've got 11 in the sector. Um, the largest being Arrow that NextGen has, and the second largest being a Tango at our, it's Bannermans project with an annualised average production of 7.2 million pounds per annum. Now when I run through that list, there's only three of those 11 projects that have got a definitive feasibility study, uh, which is Tango, Mulga Rock and Peninsula's Lance, which is, uh, ha- has been in production previously. So if you, if you cross Lance off, um, and they've had some fabulous progress recently, full kudos to them. But if you cross them off as not being a development project per se, uh, it's, an, it's a very, very tight and small subset at any great size. And despite being such a large project, a Tango can go into full ramp up within three years of being financed. So it is a relatively swift project that could come on. We've got our environmental and social permitting, Um, it's in Namibia with all the infrastructure in place, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of the large projects, and we should reassure your listeners that this wasn't a leading question from you, But in terms of large projects, I'd have to say it's a tango unless this sector takes a lot longer and a number of these other larger projects can play catch up in terms of some of the very uncertain things like environmental uh, environmental approvals, national scale infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I have pretty similar views. I I think that uh, if uranium was $45 tomorrow when we made coffee, uh, Given the date that we have in line now, I would say that the earliest that that would be back online, MacArthur River, would be two years. But uranium's not at $45 a pound. So <laughs> your your scenario of December 45 or January 45, contracting, rehiring, finding the talent, restarting, ramping back up, that's 2023. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe sometime in twenty twenty two, if you're lucky. So I, I think that that's right online, and I think on the other side, on the on the new notable mines, I think that that uh, it's an interesting point you made there. With uh, obviously the the quickest, you know, you said three years. Um, we know that next gen, highly, highly, highly unlikely that that would happen in red tape Canada. Um, so. I think that that's an interesting point that you mentioned there. Um, I'm gonna leave it there on that. Let's, let's move on to something else. Uh, is there any key people or companies uh, that you'd like to mention that are notable for people, uh, the audience, to maybe look into? Is there any key sector veterans or, or, or people you like or maybe a company that's very interesting to you that you'd like to mention?
1: Uh, I think the most interesting development in the sector has been the advent of the new financial players. Um, So this is both your yellow cakes, who are raising money to buy physical Uranium, but also your um, new investor vehicles that are focused on Uranium equities. Um, And there is a huge amount of expertise lying behind those groups. So if you were to just pick some examples, um, Satiam Cove partners with Mike Alkin, and not only incredibly detailed the work that Mike and Tim have done. On the sector. But he's come to the sector from a very different background and I always find that interesting. I always find it interesting when someone uh, isn't loaded with the cognitive bias that often happens with someone who made a lot of money in the last sector or um, is, is in other ways in love with the industry etc. So it's always fascinating to listen to Mike's perspective and apart from just being high quality. Uh, you always get something a little bit different as well. Um, then another one was uh, Auklana Asset Management out of Singapore. Um, they've launched a uranium fund uh, that's focused on equities. Um, Alex Molyneux, great value. He also has a broad sector approach, so he isn't he isn't limited in terms of thinking about uranium from a nuclear perspective. He thinks of other industries at the same time. Um, the guys at Segre Capital, uh, Adam and Art, um, both Deep thinkers do a lot of good work on the sector. Um, and then Dustin Garrell, who works for um, Yellow Cake, Bannerman and Energy Fuels. You know, he's someone who's been around for 40 years. He's worked across the nuclear sector, everything from being a, a maritime nuclear guy from the Navy days through trading companies, through investment vehicles like Yellowcake advising um, producers. I think it was Dustin who sold the $136 pound back in 2007. Uh, So an absolute wealth of information. And and I'm very fortunate to have Dustin in my team. And it it certainly gives us a a thinking edge and an analysis edge uh, that is very supportive for our business and certainly means that myself and the board has an edge when it comes to strategic decisions. Um, So I think, uh, and then some of the new entrants are interesting as well. So L2 Capital, which is a Brazilian fund that uh, is, they've got a fund that specialises in Uranium. Um, Marcelo Lopez, you've probably uh, seen him on Twitter, again, come into the sector uh, relatively recently with a very open mind. Always a different perspective because he's coming from a South American perspective. He's getting asked questions from Brazilian investors and family officers and so on. Uh, so someone that's definitely worth following and listening carefully to, and you know all of those people I have quite a lot of interaction with and I respect enormously. So I think that's a good source of information, and because they're equity investors, not company pro, um, promoters, they do have a more balanced perspective. So when they're looking at a Section 232, it's their job not to drink too much of the producer Kool-Aid, but to look at what a are doing and look at it from the utility perspective and look at it from the bigger perspective and try and form their best balanced view. Now, they're not always gonna hand over all of that IP um, straight out of Twitter or over a podcast, uh, but they, are, they all have an interest in guiding the investor market in the right direction, um, which is certainly what I'm trying to do as well.
0: Well, Brandon, that was a wealth of information. Uh, I think we'll leave it there at part one. We look forward to having you back for part two.
1: Great. Right, I'd enjoy that. Yeah. Thanks very much, Andrew.